Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. And it is another me, myself and EI part this week of that series on emotional intelligence. We're calling it part seven, but it is also part of 1% better. And I'm probably confusing everybody at this stage, but it is a very, very good episode. This one focusing deeper again on self-awareness. So last week, last Friday, I released the first six episodes of me, myself and EI all in one fell swoop, all came down around midnight or thereabouts on the Friday morning. And I said I'd give that a lash, something I've never done before. I think I've released two or maybe four before, but never six. Definitely takes a lot of work in the background, putting it together, getting it ready to go out. It's nice then, though, when you put all six out, knowing that they're out there and it'll take a while for people to check them all out or some of them out. And it's just great to have extra content out there that you can check out for free and dip in and dip out of. And there is a pattern, I suppose, a story that will continue on through this series as it works the whole way through the emotional intelligence umbrella or framework or model or whatever term you want to use. I don't know what the right term is, but it is touching on so many competencies. And I said we'd start with self-awareness because that and and awareness in general is the, the foundation and build from there. So thanks for checking it out. What I would love if you did take a few minutes of your time after listening is to drop me an email, rob at robofthegreen.ie, to give me some genuine feedback. Is there anything that stood out more for you than others in those first six episodes? Any parts you didn't like? Because there's a mix of pure solo and interview. Let me know, because that, again, is the only way I can improve by hearing from others as much as I think I know what's going on myself and how it could go down. The ultimate is feedback, uncovering blind spots that I might have, and I'm sure I do have, and I always will have. And that's interesting because that's part of what we talk about today. You might have noticed in this title, The Dinner of Truth, and that's all about learning what you don't know about yourself and asking for feedback. So I've labored on that point now, but please do give me some feedback and ideas as we progress with this series next week, I'll probably be back releasing a very typical traditional 1% better interview and have a few of those lined up, but we'll dip in and out of me, myself and EI over the next while as well. And this one is a brilliant episode of honestly, one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done of all the shows. And as I went through the notes, I took so much from it in the editing process and writing down takeaways uh, and I've obviously shared most of that in the notes with this episode but it was brilliant and the reason it's so good is because the lady that I interviewed Tasha Urich PhD in organizational psychology a researcher and a New York Times bestseller she's two amazing books out called bankable leadership and insights and her TED talk has been viewed she's done two TED talks but one the more recent one that ties into self-awareness and insights has been multiple tens of millions of times viewed And I really enjoyed watching it in preparation for this. It was a real honor to have her on the show. She is high profile. She knows what she's talking about. She's done the research. It's not just reading from a book and regurgitating it out again. She's 
very big into empirical data and interviews, it can certainly come across that she knows what she is talking about. The interview, again, is all about self-awareness and looking at it from an internal perspective and an external. I was putting together a paper a while back on awareness and why leaders should become their own chief awareness officers. I used some of Tasha's material in putting that together. And the truth of her research is that 95% of us think we are very self-aware, but in actual fact, it's only about 10 or 15% that actually are. And that was very insightful and something I wanted to know more about. And we talked about that in the interview. As I said earlier, it's packed with insights. The book is called Insights, but it's packed with them that Tasha discovered from her own career journey from a very young age. She knew what she wanted to do in her grown up years, and she's definitely living that. But it's loaded with from the research she's done lots from her own books and from her own consulting and executive coaching practice that she'd been running for the last decade. Ties it all in together in the form of books, but also in the form of podcasts and output that she shares. There's tools in here that you can use to develop your internal self-awareness, asking yourself questions on how could you improve and what did you do today that went well and what could go better and also looking for feedback and that's more external self-awareness that I talked about the dinner of truth that you might take up and have a virtual dinner with somebody in the near future. Definitely useful, lots of 1% better tips that will tie in with the self-development, self-awareness and obviously emotional intelligence as well. Lots more about Tasha in the show notes at the end. You can subscribe to her website. She has a quiz in there around self-awareness that you might use. So I'll leave it there. As always, please do subscribe to the podcast where 1% Better and this one, me, myself and EI live or email me rob at robofthegreen.ie and give me some information that you uh, have to share that could make the whole thing improve a little bit more. So let's give it over to Tasha Yurik and this one on self-awareness. Enjoy and be safe. Good luck. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the podcast. This episode is going to probably focus on, definitely focus on helping you become more self-aware, more than 1%, I would hope. And I'm really, really genuinely delighted to introduce my guest for this one, Tasha Yurik. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to have you and really excited about talking to you about your own journey, but also the work you do and what um, yes, was what are the areas to focus in on around self-awareness and how we can help listeners improve in, in one way or another. What I'll start with is my, my own interest in people's background and the work they do. And I often like to ask people, what's their earliest memory? What's your earliest memory? Oh, gosh. Well, it actually it factors into my origin story pretty uh, beautifully. It was being uh, five or six years old and being with my mother at the company that she founded and literally following her around and watching how much of an impact a business could make on the people that work in it and how much impact leaders can make for the people that they work with. Um, and that really cemented, I think, just a lifelong passion for helping leaders create successful businesses that positively impact people's lives. Wow. And at the age of six, you kind of knew that. I did. I did. (laughs) 
I've, I've always been a bit of an old soul, um, but, you know, but a single mom didn't have a lot, you know, to yeah. do with me. So sometimes I would come with her to work and, mm. you know, in some ways it was my earliest leadership education. Okay. No, my, my mom was a single mom as well. And I'm not sure, probably not, not a similar kind of career. She was entrepreneurial. So it kind of gave me a drive to uh, be independent in lots of ways, I suppose, as well. It's, it's interesting because I've interviewed a lot of people and they've mentioned they had single moms and have gone on to do really good things just to follow on to that then from that early age it seemed sounds like you had a good sense of what you were going to be when you grew up did you feel that it was the work you were meant to do do you believe in that sort of like vocation almost i i do uh i can i can think of actually the moment in my life when my life's purpose was abundantly clear to me i was um at university, I was studying theater and psychology. And, you know, I'm a lifelong theater nerd from a self-awareness standpoint. I knew I probably wasn't good enough to do it professionally. So <laughs> was shopping for other careers and I found psychology. And I, I loved the study of human behavior, but I also really didn't see myself as a therapist. I, I, there was something about it that just didn't fit for me. I did a, a bunch of internships early on in college and kind of mental health care settings and um, just didn't really float my boat. But, uh, I decided in my junior year of college that I wanted to find, I, I decided, you know, in my youthful ignorance, I was like, I wonder if someone's ever thought of business psychology. You know, maybe, maybe someone could invent the intersection of, of organizations and psychology. Yeah. And as it turns out, that had been around for a very long time since uh, essentially World War II. And I, I went to a tiny little liberal arts college in the United States, uh, and I didn't have any ability to take courses in organizational psychology. So I moved to New York in the summer of 2001, mm. and I took a um, very small summer school course of something called industrial organizational psychology. Mm. And I remember it was taught by this very uh, bored Italian TA. She didn't want to be there. She wanted to take the summer off and be with her friends. You know, grad school is really hard. <laughs> um, and, and I just remember sitting there in that first lecture and it was almost like the like heavens opened up and, and said, this is what you were put on this earth to do. And I was really lucky to have had that experience early on in my life because from there I didn't look back. I, I uh, immediately applied to PhD programs. I, I picked my favorite one. Uh, I, I, you know, studied for five years. I went into the private sector, and then I started my own uh, consulting practice a little more than ten years ago. Mm, very, very interesting. I interviewed Barry Schwartz on the podcast a few months ago. Um, have you heard of Barry Schwartz? The Paradox of Choice was the big book he yes, released. Yes, absolutely, great work. Great guy and really interesting. And something stuck with me when I talked to him about. Our, your, your, our journeys and you know how hard work gets you or he believes luck has a huge role to play in 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 everybody's success that's something you would believe i do i also one thing i would add to that um hard work luck and paying attention and i think that's a good way to frame our discussion today on self-awareness you mm. know I, I by no means do i have everything figured out but i do think as I look back on my life, that was one area where I was paying attention to sort of the reservations I was having. You know, it's a, a pretty traditional career path for a person majoring in psychology would be to go into counseling or therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I allowed myself to not take that path, I think, because I was paying really close attention. 
Mm. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one. And it just struck, struck me when I talked to Barry and I like asking people how, how they think luck has a role to play. So so you mentioned we were going to talk very much about self-awareness. Just before we do and talk about insight and the learnings from that, your first book, Bankable Leadership, can you talk to me a little bit about that and maybe what you learned from putting that book together that fed into insight? Sure. So, wow, that's a blast from the past. I published it in 2013, and that was actually right um, a couple years after I had gone out, gone out on my own um, and was really trying to codify what I had learned about leadership in you know the first 10 or so years of my career. And what I kept coming back to, whether I was working with a um, a nurse in a in a frontline leadership role in a hospital, or I was working with the CEO of a you know large Fortune 500 company. I, I saw this tension that that almost every leader faced on virtually a daily basis between making their people happy and driving results. Mm-hmm. You know, and and results can be sort of a broad uh, you know swath depending on the type of organization you're in. If it's a for profit organization, it's you know hitting your numbers. If it's a not for profit organization, it's it's a sustainable organization um, continuing to survive and serve your mission. And what I I was really intrigued by that idea of you know it, it's not this sort of either or thing. And as I got into it. I learned that most leaders had a preference between people and results. Um, and this is sort of a grossly oversimplified way of looking at it. But on one hand, you have what I call the cool parent leader, who's uh, somebody who, you know, I just want to be your friend. I don't, mm-hmm. don't think of me as a boss. Um, you know, Steve Carell from The Office or, you know, Ricky Gervais from The Office, depending on which version of The Office you watch, um, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is metaphorically uh, the trail of dead bodies leader, right? So the first one is focused sort of exclusively on people. The other side is exclusively on results. Most people aren't that extreme, but they're somewhere in between. Um, and what I discovered in my, my empirical research and doing you know dozens and dozens of interviews with successful leaders is that the best leaders were able to balance both. Um, and, and as it relates to your second part of your question, how it influenced my, my uh, most recent book, Insight, there was a, in, in the conclusion of Bankable Leadership, I just kind of like offhandedly said, hey, you know, there's, there's three steps to becoming a, a more bankable leader. One is knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, two is practicing or two is picking one thing. And then three is practicing every day. And I ended up doing a, a TED Talk, my first of two TED Talks. Um, on sort of that three-step formula. And when I did it, the outpouring that we got from people that really connected with that first step in the equation was um, incredible. And that was actually what started to lead me to think about, okay, what what is this foundational skill of self-awareness? What is it really, why is it so important? And then how can I help people get more of it? Mm. Brilliant. Really interesting to hear that. And, and to bring it into the self-awareness, what fascinates me a little bit about it, and you mentioned knowing thyself, uh, I think about five or six years ago was when I began to properly know myself in my mid-30s, got there in the end, I suppose that's not, not a bad thing, but it, self-awareness has been around forever, uh, I guess, but it's really in the last number of years, short few years, that it seems to have come to the fore more, and maybe that's just for me, it's become more into my own line of sight but would you say that's the 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 truth and 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 why do you think it's become so important uh recent times 
Oh gosh! Oh, there's so many parts to that question. That are I, I won't have to speak for the rest of the podcast. I can. <laughs> I know I could just drone on about that for two hours, uh, but let me let me try to be succinct. Okay. So I think the first part of your question is absolutely true. That um, you know, in some ways, self awareness is a concept as old as humans. You know, you go back all the way to uh, you know the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, uh, where the Greeks inscribed "Know thyself," and so I think it's it's been up until you know the past 50 or 60 years, it's really been the exclusive purview of almost philosophy, right? Of just this idea of like, what does it take to know yourself? Um, but what I found really interesting, and I'm a, I'm a science nerd at heart, was when I started to look at the actual scientific research that had been done on the subject, it really only started um, in, in sort of the last half of, of the 1900s. And in addition to that, the research that was being done was very fragmented. It wasn't unified. It was sort of scattered across a lot of different disciplines. Um, and we didn't really know a whole lot. But then what happens, you know, call it, I'd say like eight years ago, that's just a sort of a random number that feels right to me, um, although I probably could be more scientific about <laughs> it. Um, business leaders started to eclipse what we knew about um, sort of the science of self-awareness because they were seeing how critically important it was. And if you think about, you know, what's been going on in business and, you know, gosh, especially the last month is that the, the pace of change or the rate of change is accelerating to such an extent that leaders can no longer rely on the things that got them where they are today, right? That you could, we've all experienced this, you know, you, you wake up and all of the rules are different. And so for me, when I look at why self-awareness has become so important um, and why, frankly, the science needed to catch up and catch up quickly is that it's the meta skill of the 21st century. Um, we can only be as effective of a leader as we are self-aware, as an effective of a communicator, an influencer, um, a disruptor, right? And so I think that's why I felt so much passion about not just preaching about self-awareness, but studying it. And we, our research team, um, this is now, you know, six or seven years ago, began a very large scale scientific research program on, on the science of self-awareness. So what is it? Where does it come from? Why do we need it? How do we increase it? And what was really interesting was there were quite a few surprises along the way. Um, and that's really what I see my contribution to this conversation um, about self-awareness is let's, let's bring the actual science into it and see what it tells us. Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's a really fascinating approach. And uh, as I was doing my research about you, uh, the word research did come up a lot. And you've just kind of confirmed that your science nerd uh, behind it all helps back that up. So maybe talk to me about the approach of, of the research. And as, as you started to dive into that, some of the things that started to emerge that were really strong and that really helped drive the, the content of the, the book? Oh, gosh, <laughs> there's so many things. You know, let me start maybe with what I think was our most surprising finding. Yeah. So this was very early on in the in the study. And um, what I decided I wanted to do was, you know, survey about 300 people. And I had this hypothesis that, of course, the people who spent the most time introspecting, um, you know, really deeply considering their thoughts and feelings and motives, that the more time they spent doing that, the better off they would be. So that they would be more self-aware, that they would be happier, more in control. Um, you know, they'd be less depressed, less anxious. And so I ran the study and I remember I was sitting up in, in my office and it was like 10 o'clock at night and I was eating smart food popcorn. And um, I, I did 
the pretty simple analysis and it actually showed the exact opposite of what I thought I would find. So not only did people who spent a lot of time introspecting um, show a lot of kind of negative outcomes, they were more stressed, more anxious, less in control of their lives, less happy with their relationships. They actually, wait for this, were less self-aware. And I sort of had this moment of like, oh my God, what have I just stumbled on? You know, first I, I said, did I, did I do my analyses wrong? Did I, did I code this wrong? And uh, no, I, I did it three or four times and, and that was actually what the data were telling us. And so we, we came to this really interesting point in the study where I was honestly asking the question, you know, is self-awareness actually good? Mm. Is it adaptive? Or should I be writing a book about blissful ignorance and delusion and, and mm-hmm. you know, encouraging people to do that? Yeah. And as it turns out, you know, it took us a little while to dig into this and, and find other studies and sort of replicate what we were finding. But what we discovered is it's not that uh, introspection in and of itself doesn't work to become more self-aware. It's just the way that most people do it is incorrect. And, and that's a theme that runs through a lot of what we've learned in our in our study uh, and others as well, is that, you know, despite our best efforts and despite our level of confidence that we're self-aware, um, most of us have a lot more room to improve than we think. So, so the sort of stunning statistic that I, that I often quote is we found that about 95% of people believe that they are self-aware, but only about 10 to 15% of us actually are. And, you know, the joke I always make about that is that it means that on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. Now, does that mean that we're bad people? No. Does it mean that we can never become more self-aware? Absolutely not. It's actually, I think, one of the most learnable skills out there. But what I think um, is important for each and every one of us to start doing, given all this, is to question the paths that we've been using to get there. And then even more fundamentally to say, wait a minute, uh, if I wasn't as self-aware as I thought, how would I know? So that, that's really interesting, Tasha. What I was taking from that was, as you were explaining it, the 10 or 15% of people that actually are and the, the, the flip side, the 80 or so that, that aren't, they're obviously reflecting, they're obviously thinking that they're being self-aware, but are they just thinking? Is that the problem? And the second part is, when, when we maybe shine a light on that, how do they then start actually practicing self-awareness? One of the uh, most interesting parts about our study was we found um, 50 people, five zero, who didn't start out as self-aware, but throughout the course of their adult life, they, lives, they, they dramatically improved their level of self-knowledge, both sort of knowing who they were internally and then understanding how other people saw them. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was fascinating. You know, we did these exhaustive interviews with them and really tried to get in their brains and figure out how, you know, what are they doing that's different than the average person, you know, who is not particularly self-aware. And the first thing we found was almost this paradox. Paradox was these are arguably some of the most self-aware people, you know, you could come across. They did feel confident about their self-knowledge. But at the same time, they had this sense that um, there was always more they could learn. So it was sort of this inherent uh, self-compassionate curiosity. Um, one of our one of our subjects was a, a middle school science teacher, and he gave a great analogy of the the process of becoming you know self-aware throughout your life. It's like exploring space. He said, no matter what it is we know about ourselves 
there's always more to know. And in fact, what we don't know probably eclipses what we do know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a really important lesson for all of us is um, I, I named it the braver but wiser mindset. So it's assumption that, you know, A, it's always better to know than to not know. Um, what's really scary is not having that clarity about who we are and how we're seen. And then two is that, you know, to never get too confident in our level of self-knowledge. Um, so many of, of our participants told us stories about, you know, I uh, had a conversation with my significant other and they told me that our marriage was not in fact going as well as I thought it was. And wow, that was a surprise. And so I had to recalibrate. Mm. And I think if we all have those moments in our lives, if we're open to recalibrating, if we have that mindset, that sets us up um, for a much greater chance of actually increasing our self-awareness. And then the other thing I'd say, you know, and we can talk about specific tools because that's something um, that obviously is very important. Um, But the other thing that I encourage people to think about is don't put pressure on yourself to go from zero to 60 overnight. We found that there were lots of different types of events that increased people's self-awareness. You know, there's some of the classic ones where, you know, um, I, I called it an earthquake event, where it's something so big and so profound that you almost can't help but learn about yourself. So that would be, you know, going back to my example, you know, your spouse serves you divorce papers, or you uh, mm. don't get a promotion that you thought you were absolutely going to get at work, these kind of big things. But we also found that um, the vast majority of the events that helped people improve their self-awareness were what I named everyday insights. And this is basically small, incremental, daily insights that if you add them up over the course of time, have the potential to give us extraordinary improvements in, in how we see ourselves and the clarity. So I think if we, if we you know, some people just wait for like the lightning bulb to or, mm-hmm. mixed metaphor, the lightning bolt or the light bulb. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes we're waiting forever and those things don't happen. But if we're engineering, you know, if you think about like 1%, mm-hmm. what if you could get 1% more self-aware um, every week and, and parse that over the course of years? And that's when you can really make a huge improvement. So I think those, those uh, mindsets and practices are a really good starting point. Mm-hmm. Perfect alignment with the name of this podcast in 1% yes. <laughs> better. Um, what was interesting for me when you talk about that 50 selection or that sample of 50 people that were the ones that maybe became, were the most self-aware, was there anything in their in their background that that was kind of influencing that? Or was there anything they were doing by chance that was helping them become more self-aware? This is what uh, is really cool, I think. Um, we did not find any patterns on based on demographics. So it, it, there was no patterns ab- uh, about age or gender or uh, national origin or industry or job type or level. These were people who were, um, uh, I mentioned our, our teacher, so we had a Fortune 50 CEO, we had stay-at-home parents, we had artists, entrepreneurs. And it was fascinating because th- these people had to clear basically four hurdles empirically, and they were pretty pretty rigorous. Number one was they had to um, score uh, very, very high in our um, 
70 item scientifically validated self-assessment of self-awareness. So they had to say, yes, I have clarity on my values and my aspirations and my patterns and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, someone who knew them well had to take that same assessment for them and agree, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, if we had just asked people to volunteer, hey, are you self-aware? Come be in our study. Uh, we all know how that would turn out, right? So uh, self, self-rated self-awareness, other-rated self-awareness, and then both the person and the person who was rating them had to agree that they had made a dramatic improvement in their level of self-awareness. And when we looked at what these people had in common, we found really only two things. Number one was a belief in the supreme importance of seeing themselves clearly at work and in life. And number two was uh, an almost daily commitment to improving their level of self-awareness. But that was the only thing that tied them together. Hmm. Interesting stuff. And definitely the criteria that you talked through there is so rigorous that uh, it it, it's fascinating what emerges when when you go through that level of uh, rigor, I guess. So yeah, then we maybe will talk a bit about the how-to or, or the tools, as you said, that are very important. And and obviously, I want people to buy your book and get more detail in that. But what are the, the things that you think anyone could take on board to develop their self-awareness? Easy habits or practices that they could start using uh, that will show improvements early to give that them, you know, give them momentum. So I'm going to break that down uh, into two specific pieces of advice that map on to the two types of self-awareness we've identified. Um, So just to kind of break this down and and hack the code of self-awareness, we discovered that when people know themselves, there's basically two general things they know. And I referred to this earlier, but I'll be more specific now. Number one is they have kind of an internal understanding of who they are, Um, self-awareness from uh, the inside out. This is something we called internal self-awareness. And this is what I mentioned earlier that p- most well-intentioned people think that if you just go kind of sit on a, on a beach or in a beautiful mountain scenery and you know extra credit for being in the lotus position and think about yourself that you will build that internal self-awareness. Mm. But what we've discovered, uh, and again, we could do a, a two-hour podcast on this, but just to, to oversimplify it a little bit, is that... Um, Thinking about ourselves too deeply and, for example, trying to excavate our unconsciousness is actually um, not only does it fail to produce results that are true, but it can sort of lead us astray. Um, and so one of the practices that I that we learned from our participants that I think is really easy and quick every day is, you know, you you don't have to spend hours and hours every week in the psychoanalyst chair. What you can do instead is what what I've named the daily check-in. And it's and pretty much all of our participants ask themselves these questions in some form or fashion. Um, and I'm talking five minutes or less. So this could be, you could ask these questions when you're, uh, when the world starts up again, when you're coming home from work, um, you could think about them when you're brushing your teeth every night. Um, you know, it's a very flexible process. So, so here's what the questions are. Mm-hmm. Number one, what went well today? Number two, what did not go so well today? And number three, how can I be smarter tomorrow? And what we've discovered is that having this focused check-in 
prevents us from getting into all of those introspection traps that I mentioned before. Now, is this some total thing that will get us internally self-aware? Of course not. <laughs> but I do think it's one of the most tangible, practical, uh, sort of low time invested practices that, you know, if we start doing that and nothing else, mm -hmm. you can really get some great improvement. The second piece of self-awareness that we've identified um, is self-awareness from the outside in. So what this is, uh, we named it external self-awareness. It means understanding how other people see us. And interestingly, internal and external self-awareness are completely independent. So just because you have one doesn't mean that you also have the other. So we have to kind of work on both of them. Okay. Um, and and this, the second tool that I'll give you is going to sound really scary, but I'm actually going to talk about why it's not as scary as it sounds. Um, and it's called the dinner of truth. This is something that I learned from uh, a great communications professor named Josh Meisner. And he's done this with, uh, you know, literally probably now like tens of thousands of his students over the years. Right. And here's, here's what you do. So you basically find someone who uh, is important to you who you want to uh, even deepen your relationship with, and you take them out to a meal. I suggest dinner because you know sometimes adult beverages and moderation can be helpful in this conversation, but it doesn't have to be. And so you sit down at dinner or lunch, and you ask them the following question. What do I do that is most annoying to you? And then you listen. <laughs> And I would never ask my uh, executive coaching clients or my readers to do anything that I myself haven't tried multiple times. Right. And so the first time I actually went through this, I found uh, by design what I thought was my most crotchety friend. Uh, and his name is Mike. And so I, I was thinking, gosh, wow, I'm having a lot of different emotions right now. I, I have this secret fear that actually when I ask him that question, he's going to say, you know, I'm glad you asked because I never really liked you in the first place, <laughs> right? I, I was expecting him to say, yeah, you suck as a person and I never want to talk to you again. And, and I think that's a very reasonable human fear. We, we um, evolved to be social creatures. And so there's this, all, there's this low level fear that we're going to get voted off the island. But I pushed through it anyway. And I, I asked him the question and he sort of thought for a minute and he said, uh, well, Tasha, here's, here's my feedback for you. I Did love you in person, but I hate you on social media. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, wow. So I had several thoughts going through my mind at that point. I said, you know, first of all, he said he loves me. So that's, that's an affirming statement. Mm. Second of all, the feedback he gave me is highly actionable, very mm. specific, and again, not an indictment of who I am. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of that was at that point, I had a choice. And this is where I go back to, it is always better to know. So I could have gone on never having asked him that question. Um, and, you know, Ben, uh, I call it the cult of self, you know, been, been a member of the cult of self on social media, telling everyone how great I was all the time. Um, but, I, but now I had a choice. And that feedback actually really fundamentally changed, this was several years ago, how I show up on social media, both in, you know, personally and professionally. And so the reason I like sharing that example is it shows us that our worst fears are almost never confirmed, that what we learn is almost always very actionable, and then probably most important, that it, it can be an experience that deepens our connections with other people. Mm. Very, very cool. And I think I, I probably wrote a 
about five questions down on the back of that second one. So I might ask one or two just on the dinner of truth. So I presume if I was to go for dinner of truth with somebody I know to, to learn a little bit more about myself, I would let them know beforehand that we're going for a dinner of truth and I'm going to be asking you to tell me stuff or you can <laughs> just land it, land it with them and you know they probably need a bit of time to think about it. I, so th- this is the part that's more of an art than a science. Mm. Um, I do think there are different types of people. So one example, I work with uh, a lot of engineers, uh, engineers who are who are senior leaders. And um, I would imagine if I was having a dinner of truth with an engineer, I might want to give them a heads up because they're methodical and yes. analytical and they want to think it through. Um if I was meeting with, I'm just making this up, if I was meeting with a friend who is in sales or, you know, who's like super extroverted and flies by the seat of their pants, it might be okay to um, sort of ask them in that setting and not give them the heads up. Mm-hmm. What I what I think is actually even more important than that is playing out in your mind what you think might happen after you ask that question. Because, um, and, and Josh Meisner, the professor that, that came up with this exercise, um, has learned this over the years as well. And he sort of advises his students that be prepared for someone to just sit there and look at you wide-eyed. Um, because most of the time, you know, this is part of the reason so few people are self-aware. We don't ask these questions of each other. And in that context, if that, if that happens, you can say something like, listen, uh, I know this question, uh, you might feel like I'm trying to trick you, or you might feel like, uh, you, you know, you, you know what you want to say, but you don't know if I really want to hear it. And I want to assure you that I'm just doing this to check my perception. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing this because our relationship is important to me. I want to be the best friend or the best colleague that I can be to you. Um, and so please don't worry about offending me. My job is to listen with an open mind um, to anything you have to say and to to thank you and be grateful for, for what you provide. So I, I actually think that's more important mm-hmm. than what you do beforehand. Okay, interesting. And and just one other on that, you mentioned the dichotomy, I suppose, of, of what the feedback was for you on as a person versus on social media. In a way, we have sub-personalities or, or we're different people in certain different mediums, I suppose. Would that be fair to say? And that is it okay sometimes to be that different person on social media than you are in person, do you think? Gosh, you know, I I would never put a judgment on anyone for what they choose to do, you know, in real life versus social media. I am a big believer in coherence. Um, There's been a a lot of research on something called uh, emotional labor, which is basically (laughs) the toll that trying to to seem like we're someone that we're not mm-hmm. and, and, and the toll that that takes on us in the long term. Um, and I do believe that if we can be, you know, the best version of who we are in all situations and we have that coherence, not only are we um, building stronger relationships out of authenticity, but we're, we're happier. Um, I, just as a quick anecdote and aside that I think it's really important, yeah. um, when I when I'm coaching a CEO, um, I'll usually talk to about thirty of the people they they work with, and also um, family members, you know, uh, a, adult kids, spouses, best friends. And sometimes, you know, the reason I started doing that several years ago was people would say, "Oh, well, you only talk to my coworkers. I'm not this way at home." 
<laughs> and now I can say, well, actually, I talked to your wife. Uh, she let me, uh, you know, make her feedback not anonymous. So I can tell you exactly what she said. <laughs> she said that she also sees this behavior, you know, for good and for bad. It's not just the, you know, the, the blind spots we have. And, and so I think, you know, sometimes we even think we're being different, but maybe we're not as different as we believe. Mm, that's bringing the 360 feedback to to the next level i guess because a lot of times we do 360s it's probably just employee employees or peers that you uh you go to but get to the family and kids really get the dirty linen out for sure <laughs> exactly and it's the funny thing is you almost never i almost never learn anything i didn't already know from talking to their board members or their employees but it just adds such a richness to it because then not only are they working on their success at work and their happiness at work, but it's this, it's, it ripples out into every area of their life. And it's just, it's incredible to, to be a part of and to help with. Mm. And, and just on that as well, as you're working now more and more with CEOs and self-awareness is becoming more important, are you noticing that their personality or them as a whole doesn't have to be so different in work as it is out of work? Do you see a, a kind of a movement towards being authentic you know in all circumstances or is it this is my work life that's my home life they're very different you know so i actually think this has been magnified in the last month or so mm. leaders who especially senior leaders who separate the person you know the person they are from uh you know the the role they play at work do not are not able to build a level of trust and commitment in their, in the people that follow them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting because when times are good, that's fine. You know, it's fine because, you know, everything's good. We're not in crisis. You know, people are probably going to follow me. That's fine. But what I'm seeing right now is a, is a, um, a divide between, you know, and, and I'm, I'm proud to work with clients that do this so well, and I'm proud to help them do this so well, but um, sort of other leaders that maybe are not bringing who they are as a person into their leadership, um, that's when things start to unravel, right? If, if, if you are working for someone, you know, whether it's the, the CEO or your direct supervisor, who you don't really know who they are, um, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what's important to them. You don't know about their family and the fact that they're a human, you know, beyond just being your boss. Um, it's it's a lot harder to feel safe and to be able to soldier on in the midst of a crisis. Um, and so, if anything, right now, what I am coaching my my uh, clients to do is to bring more of that in. Um, I, I'm working with a leader right now who has a um, very, very huge job at a, a technology company that everybody's heard of. And he filmed this video for, uh, you know, his thousands of people that work for him. And I said, um, I, I would suggest that you refilm the video um, and put a couple of family pictures behind you. <laughs> <laughs> and at first he was like, why? That's so stupid. I don't want to refilm the video. And then it's like, no, people have to see who you are. They have to be able to connect with you as a human right now um, if, they, if we have any chance of getting through this. And vice versa, right? He, I, everybody should be, who's a leader, should be connecting with their teams on a personal level. Um, you know, we're all video conferencing from home. And so that becomes infinitely easier overnight. Um, and, and I do see that as, you know, in this terrible situation, I actually see that as an opportunity to build deeper, more human relationships that can help us, you know, get through this crisis. Mm, interesting. And just the last one on, on that area, I suppose, 
developing self-awareness for leaders that maybe weren't that self-aware, there's probably a lot of discomfort in that process. How do they deal with the uh, discomfort or, or that move to be becoming more self-aware? Any Anything that you advise or you've seen work well? So I think a couple of things. Um, number one, you know, it's really about that moment that you sit down with your client and deliver the results of their 360. And again, since I do interviews, this, this is, you know, personal stuff. Mm-hmm. And very often they learn things they're doing well that they didn't know before, but um, probably even more often they learn things that they're not doing as well um, that they didn't know. And the first thing is to normalize that reaction. I, I have seen <laughs> pretty much at this point, nothing can surprise me. I have seen uh, people cry, people yell. I had a guy once who punched a wall. I had a, a woman once who accused me of making up the feedback, like the feedback was fake news and it couldn't possibly be true. I could go on and on. Um, but what was interesting there is every single one of those people that I just mentioned made incredible, dramatic transformations. And so what I've learned is our initial reaction to sort of learning the truth or the perceptions that others have of us Um doesn't predict how successful we'll be. So I think it's okay. It's okay to be upset. What I tell my clients is kind of the second thing is this is a finite pain. Um, You know, the pain of knowing is not always easy, but I I say it's, it's it's like a a short firewalk. And then at the ends, there are puppies and rainbows. (laughs) We just have to get you to the other side. And then what I try to do is break it down for people into, um, you know, what are the very practical small changes we can help you make on a daily basis to improve in the areas that you've chosen to improve. And, and you know, 99.9% of the time that'll get us there. Mm, brilliant. Yeah. Great, great imagery there. Uh, puppies and rainbows are always, always good things to think about. Um, <laughs> it's hard not to want those, right? You gotta, you gotta walk through the coals, but uh, abs- there's something great on the other side. <laughs> totally. <laughs> when I, when I, Put it out on LinkedIn that we were going to be talking. I asked folks for a couple of questions. So I got a couple of questions. I might just ask one out of them that uh, I can put to you and see what your, your take is, if you're okay with that. Great. Okay. So this is from a lady called Moira O'Toole, good Irish name. Um, having done a psychometric test last week, I found myself discussing the results with quite a few people. And one thing that fascinates me is this question. So build up to this question. How can people who are not self-aware but think they are, complete any self-assessment or psychometric test accurately? (laughs) Moira, I really like you. I think (laughs) that is a fair question. (laughs) That's, um, uh, let me give you an example. I'm going to answer your question with an example of why I think she is uh, onto something. So there's a very famous book on emotional intelligence out there. And the book claims that, you know, after surveying half a million people, that people's level of emotional intelligence has dramatically improved over the last 15 years. Mm. There's just one problem. Those are self-reported scores of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the people you know who are not emotionally intelligent, if you ask them, you know, what percentage of people are you more emotionally intelligent than? They would say, ah, yes, I'm in the 80th percentile. I am more emotionally intelligent than 80% of people. Right. So, so there are inherent limitations in evaluating our own behaviors and characteristics 
particularly when those things are socially desirable. And this has been shown over and over and over again that um, especially in areas that, you know, are, are things that most people want, you know, we want to be funny, we want to be socially savvy, we want to be smart, we want to be great leaders. Um, we're often not the best judges of our own behaviors and traits. Now, does this mean that our viewpoint never matters? Definitely not. There's a lot of research that shows that both are important, right? So our own evaluations of ourselves and other people's uh, evaluations of us. And the, the art of self-awareness is sometimes living with those paradoxes. The, the, the self-aware people that we studied in our, um, our research program were able to sort of live with that paradox. They would say, okay, well, this is interesting. I've always seen myself as, you know, someone who's emotionally intelligent, but I, you know, got this feedback that suggests that I might not be. Okay, that's interesting. And so I think the worst thing someone could do or as, as a result of, you know, listening to this podcast is to completely discount their own self-views. But I think by that same token, um, if we only rely on our self-views, we're going to be missing a very important part of the picture. Very good answer uh, on the spot. Brilliantly put. put uh, Moira would be delighted to hear that. And, and just one other one, um, and we'll wrap up then because I'm conscious of time. This one came in from a couple of folks, uh, Francesco and, and Lorraine, and it, it kind of touches on the, um, the quadrant in Joe Harry's window of the unknown to me and unknown to others. Is there any tool or, or, or any approach that you can work on to kind of uncover that or, or, or kind of um, get things to emerge from that unknown, unknown quadrant? Anything come up for you there? Uh, you know, that quadrant on the Johari window has always been a bit of a mystery to me. Mm. But hearing you ask this question in the unprecedented moment that we all find ourselves in all around the world mm. actually creates a little bit of clarity. Um, I think, so if, if, if let's say it's a, a, a skill you have that yeah. uh, heretofore has been unknown to you and unknown to others, yeah. if you significantly change the situation you're in or the rules of the situation yes. or your environment, it creates the potential for you to bring out new things in yourself. Yeah. And so what I would encourage people to do, um, again, you know, in the midst of this absolutely terrible situation, is that this might be an opportunity. Um, my friend Alan Mulally, who uh, saved Ford from the brink of bankruptcy, oh. um, you know, in less than five years, he took them from yeah. uh, one of the worst years on record to one of the best. Mm -hmm. um, he says, when, when a crisis happens and you're a leader, it's go time. And so I, I think, you know, maybe that's a good thing for us to end on today is, is the immense opportunity, not just for us to learn more about ourselves, um, you know, through self-reflection and through getting feedback from others in this, in this crisis, but the opportunity to rise to the occasion and to find strengths that we never even knew we had. Mm, definitely a great way to end. And, and as you were talking through that, it, it kind of was rolling around in my own head. And yeah, the, the circumstances we're in right now, myself, and my partner have a 15 month old baby. And I don't think it was both unknown to both of us that we could work from home and look after him at the same time um, and keep the balls in the air. So I think I've learned something from from that quadrant in the last few weeks as well. Tasha, that was uh, amazing to talk with you. Uh, really delighted to have this time and, and learn so much from uh, your, your work. Could you give a, a call out on how folks can find out more about you where, where best to go? Sure. So what I've learned is it's not about me. Uh, it's about them. 
And so what I always promote when I'm doing a, a conversation like this is a, a free quiz that we developed as for the launch of Insight a couple of years ago. We, we didn't intend to leave it up as long as we have, but it, we've just had this amazing response. So we, we've continued to make it available. Um, if, if folks want to get a high level view of their own self-awareness as rated by them and someone who knows them well, it's a quick little five minute quiz. Um, and then if you send it to someone else who knows you and once the system has all of those results, it'll send you a report on kind of your high level self-awareness and then a couple of specific things you can do to improve it should you so choose. If anybody's interested cool. in that, um, yeah. you can go to insight-quiz.com. Very cool. I think I'll do. I think I did that. And myself. then I'm very findable throughout those channels if anyone cares. But I care most about um, you guys and your self-awareness and giving you the tools you need. Brilliant. And you're you're working on another book right now as well. I saw you um, putting some posts out about the research for that. Can you share anything about that? I can. I, I'm laughing a little bit because it's amazing how uh, the universe has doubled down on how important it is for me to write this book in the last couple of weeks. Um, so the, the working title is When Bad Things Happen. <laughs> Um, <laughs> could be the best seller of all time, I think. At this I, I know, right? And and like this, this has been several months that I've been working on this book. And um, originally, uh, the focus was on kind of the the um, surviving and rising up from the uh, interpersonal injuries that we experience at work. So if we're harmed or hurt or betrayed, how do we kind of get through that and and uh, you know become even better for it? But I one of the things I'm sort of toying with right now is is d- d- does the does definition of bad things need to expand, right, mm-hmm. to, um, you know, some of the situations we find ourselves in now. So uh, it's writing books is always a fun process because there's a lot of surprises along the way, but I've learned to trust the process and uh, we'll see, we'll see where it ends up. Very cool. Definitely trust the process. Uh, it seems to work so far, Tasha. Thanks so much for taking the time out today again. I really do look forward to sharing this out with uh, listeners. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate it. Great stuff. Thanks so much. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone, pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Any will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy 
but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.